Hey, welcome to Ask a Pastor. Today I'm joined by Brady Randall. Brady is our campus pastor of our Butler location. And uh, welcome, Brady. It's great to have you here today. Good to be here. And so today we're going to jump into some questions. As always, if you have questions for Ask a Pastor, you can send them to Ask a Pastor at OrchardHillChurch.com. And we will be happy to address those in a coming episode. So Brady, uh, here's the first question. Uh, it talks about the creation of the Bible. Uh, it says, the Bible is God's divine word to us, but how did he reveal it? How was it compiled and assembled by so many different authors to become what we know it as today? Yeah, well, that could be a whole book or dissertation, I think. But uh, very simply, uh, the Bible is a collection of, of books. That's actually what, what Bible means. And so there's 66 books of the Bible, somewhere around 40 different human authors. And certainly there's a a divine side to scripture and a human side. And what I mean by that is, you know, you read in certain texts that, uh, in fact, Peter, who was one of the apostles, said that men spoke as they were carried along by the Spirit uh, in terms of God breathing out his words. And then uh, Paul says that all of scripture, with all of the Bible, is God-breathed, or it's inspired by God. And so... Um, Sometimes God spoke through direct revelation to one of God's authors or his prophets, and then they would write it down. Um, early on, there was a, it was a lot of an oral culture, so things would be uh, said orally, and then they would write them down on things like silver, stone, parchment, papyrus. And so by the time you get to Jesus' day, in terms of what we have as the Old Testament, there was very little, if any, dispute in terms of what made up the Bible. Like even the Jews of Jesus' day said, okay, yeah, this is the scripture. This is the Bible that Jesus read. And then when you get into the New Testament, um, around 180, 140, um, there began to be some people who said, no, this book of the Bible should be included. So they had to say, what, what is scripture? And generally the principle was, was it endorsed by or written by an apostle of Jesus? And so they would gather, uh, like the Gospels, uh, they would gather um, a lot of Paul's writing. They would put these together, and it wasn't that they came up with, oh, this should be Scripture. Uh, but as one author said, that Scripture and the church grew up together. It wasn't like, oh, we are conferring that these are the books that have authority, but rather th these are the books who were told about the life of Christ and, and have authority. So there's a lot of oral transmission. There's a lot of different writing. We have manuscripts. There were copies of copies of copies to be how we get the Bible today. Mm -hmm. And that may be more along what the question is asking, how did we get it today? But if you look at a 1,600-year history, uh, there was a lot of authors, a lot of compilation. So uh, let me ask you two questions uh, that are follow-ups to that. Um, so if somebody says, well, I've heard of other Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas or something that's out there, why isn't that in, in the Bible, and who got to make that decision? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, one of the things is that there's, there's a thread of consistency throughout the Gospels and throughout what, what God has said, and um, I think the Gospel of Thomas, maybe you can correct me, was, was much later. And, and what we have in the books were all written uh, within a generation of Jesus' lifetime. And so do, do you remember the date of when the Gospel of Thomas Not was? Offhand, that no. I think that was, was later. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, there, was, there was also the apos, 
apostolicity of the mm-hmm. church and so if was it endorsed by by an apostle and I think the gospel of Thomas has something about um, Mary uh, something at the end of the gospel of Thomas which is like way way out there mm-hmm. uh, well, what do you know about the gospel of Thomas and it's well, I'm asking you you're <laughs> a nice attempt to try to turn this around you're the one who's got to answer the question um, no what I would say very simply is is what happened is um, the canonicity of the of the scripture, which is what you were alluding to with the, um, does it have an apostle as an author or an endorsement? Um, is it consistent with the teaching? Was it universally recognized as being part of it? And so the Gospel of Thomas, as you alluded to, actually came later and had some things in it that that did not appear to be consistent with the overall teaching of the mm-hmm. church. And therefore, it was never even really a question. Uh, it wasn't like somebody sat around and said, oh, Gospel of Thomas. No, yeah. it just was never even in the in the serious consideration initially, yeah. uh, to which some people then would argue, well, it was a hidden gospel or maybe we need to consider it. Maybe those teachings are significant and important. Mm-hmm. And, and so at some point you are, and this leads to my second question for you, and don't try to turn it At some point, you have to take a step of faith to say, okay, I believe that this collection of books is actually God's word to me Mm -hmm. and that it has all the books that I need. There aren't other books that I need. So so, so my second question to you is, what for you um, makes that compelling? Like, why is it that you ultimately say, I take this as being actually God's word to me and I'm not concerned about having to study the Gospel of Thomas anymore to figure out if it belongs or anything else that somebody else writes and brings along to me today. What, what for you is compelling? Well, one, you know, if, if the Scripture is the Word of God, you know, Jesus is the Word of God who put on flesh. And if God superintended over the process of the Old Testament— and Jesus and the Jews in the first century said, this is the scripture. And there was no doubt about it in the first century that the Old Testament was considered the word of God. If God was, would go to such lengths to preserve for us the Old Testament, how much more so would he also preserve for us the New Testament about the teaching and the work of Jesus? And mm-hmm. so that to me is compelling. If, if there was no dispute about the Old Testament, how much more now that we have the finished work of Jesus and the mm-hmm. authors who would write about what Jesus did, that, that to me is compelling. And then as just as you, as you take it on face value, as you read it for yourself, um, that in itself is compelling. Um, that, that, you, that the scriptures speak to you, that they convict you, that you meet Jesus in the word of God. And that's something that people have to try out for themselves and say, mm-hmm. God, if this is really your word, if this is really true, I don't wanna say prove it, you don't wanna test the Lord, but see for yourself, search and see if this really has the, if you really feel like mm-hmm. this has the divine authorship that it claims to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and there's, there's some challenges, obviously, to any of those kind of points, um, uh, you know, somebody could say, well, it's circular reasoning to say, since God is trustworthy, the Bible's trustworthy yeah. when I learn about God from the Bible. Uh, somebody could say, well, sure. um, if it's a kind of test it and prove it, do I test and prove, um, you know, the, the writings or the thoughts of Mariana Williamson or, mm-hmm. you, you know, whoever else is out there. And if it seems true to me, then, and, and if, you know, 
like it really speaks truth, then it must be true. Mm-hmm. Um, that that can also run into some challenges because because you're actually as a church, and I don't mean Orchard Hill as a church, but I mean the church across time has said this is not a, a subjectively true. Mm-hmm. It is subjectively true, but it's not true because it's subjectively true. It's true objectively, apart from whether or not I believe it's true to me. Um, and so there's there's another side to this, which does require some actual hard academic work. Mm-hmm. And And what I have found in years of doing this is that is that a lot of times people want to pick on something that they don't like in the Bible. Usually they don't like something it teaches about their life. Mm-hmm. And so what they want to do is they want to find something to say, well, because this isn't true and this isn't true, these two things don't agree, Bible can't be true. And they usually glom onto one or two little things, not do a lot of research. Um, and, and what it really does take is, is some, some real academic work to say, is are these documents reliable? Do they come from a certain time and place? Um, are they consistent in what they teach? Can I resolve mm-hmm. these differences at least to a reasonable mindset? Yeah. Um, to to where I say, okay, because you know this says this or it says this, um, doesn't mean that it's totally contradictory and wrong. Um, but that that does require some some academic rigor. And then I think if you've done that and you say, this is really possible, then that subjective truth, the reading it for yourself, mm-hmm. comes in. But I think if you go to that too quickly, uh, you, you may not have that objective side um, when you start to ask the subjective question. And so I think you need both. I think you need to say, this is true and what it says about me, about life, about uh, my experience, but it's also true even if I can't make it make sense. Right. Because sometimes there's things that won't make sense to us uh, as we read it. And we'll say, that doesn't seem to square with my opinion. And I have to now decide, is my opinion higher than the scripture? Right. Or is the scripture objectively true, whether I like the opinion or not? I mean, just something simple like tithing. Um, You know, I don't really love the idea of tithing. I want to keep everything for myself. subjectively that doesn't feel good or make sense necessarily and yet you say well if the bible's true then that's objectively true whether i like it or not whether i find it now what has happened in years of of practicing giving is i've come to a place where i wouldn't not want to give because Mm. i've come to see how god does provide how god does work and how good it is to to take a first portion of income and say god this is yours but if i started with that i would have been like that's that's way that's that's just not going to happen yeah and and so i think you you there has to be the both end does that does that make sense yeah i think and to your point are the documents especially the gospels reliable and the biggest event would be the resurrection and is Mm -hmm. what they said about jesus dying and then apparently resurrecting can that be true and verifiable Mm -hmm. and i think that goes to your point if you if you look at the documents you look at other history um there are some things that aren't in dispute that there was a man named jesus of nazareth that he did have followers that he did die on a a Mm -hmm. roman cross and does the the details of the gospels line up with some of that digging and history work that you have to do yeah do you have any resources that you'd recommend? I didn't ask you that ahead of time that, that would help somebody dig into this issue. Yeah, there's uh, two books. One's The uh, Historical Reliability of the Gospels by Craig Bloomberg mm-hmm. um, has a lot of that. And then um, Case for Christ, mm-hmm. um, I think, really goes into some of that history 
Uh, Lee Strobel was an author who tried to essentially disprove Christianity by the academic work. Mm -hmm. He was a Chicago journalist, and in the process of trying to disprove the historicity and Christianity in general, that was a compelling moment where he actually came to faith, and now he's a real apologist for the Christian faith. So those would be two books that I would start with. Okay. Um, Here's a question that's related. Uh, It says, I've heard objections of Scripture Uh, that struggle with the variations in the Gospels of Jesus' words and accounts of his life. How do we respond to criticism of the validity when people claim that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all lived with Jesus and followed him, but all quote him differently and not all of the same stories uh, are the same? And so now we're not talking about outside of the scope. We're talking about inside the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, how do you account for the variations and differences, uh, things that appear to be, be contrary? Yeah. This was uh, really a crisis of faith moment for me. I'd say when I was a senior in high school, college years, and maybe first or second year of seminary. And the question I had is, if in this case the Gospels are contradictory or you find error, things that don't line up, and I can't trust what God says in the Gospels, why should I trust anything in the Scriptures? Mm-hmm. Because if you find just one detail that's either untrue or contradictory, uh, then you're sort of asking me to throw my brain away and believe mm-hmm. all the rest of it. And so that was, that was big for me. And so as I began to sort of study that and look at the apparent contradictions in this case and the Gospels, um, the one thing that was really helpful to me was um, that I often look at things through a 21st century lens. And so the writers of the first century did not have the same standards that, that we would today. You know, they didn't have quotation marks. They didn't have to write word for word. And what you see in the Gospels is not so much a photograph uh, of what happened, uh, but more of uh, a drawing, per se. And so you have four different writers who are drawing uh, about the life of Jesus. And so if, if you take, uh, th- there's a word, inerrancy, uh, to, to be without error. Mm-hmm. Now, we might look at that from a 21st century view and say, well, if, if there's two things that don't line up, if this author quotes this and this author quotes this, uh, and they're two different things, then those two things don't line up. Um, but there's a, a definition I think is really helpful. This is from David Dougherty. He says this, when all the facts are known in the Bible, in its original writings, properly interpreted in light of which the culture and communication means had developed by the time of its composition, it will be shown to be completely true and therefore not false in all that it affirms to the degree of precision intended by the author in all matters relating to God and his creation. Now, just to take one example, there's a lot in there. Mm-hmm. Um, just to take, take one, for example, Luke 14:26 and Matthew 10:37 where Jesus is talking about the cost of following him in relation to your family. In Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, if you come to me and don't hate your family, basically you can't be my disciple. And then Matthew in 10, 37 says, he who loves their family more than me is not worthy of me. Now one person says hate, the other person says who loves them more than me. And if you dig into what the word hate actually means there, it it can mean to prefer more. So even though there's not the exact quote, they're really saying the same thing. And you could go, for example, sometimes there's, where there's two angels, where there are two women or one person, where there are two people who were possessed by demons or one. Um, and in some cases, 
there may have been two, but the one author just focuses on the one. So you could go to each individual thing, but for me the most helpful thing to say is don't look at it through the 21st century lens, mm -hmm. uh, but rather the, the first century lens. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, it's important too that you allow the Bible to speak in the language of its day, which is mm -hmm. what you're saying, and, and even our day. So for example, if, uh, if um, you and your wife Susan and my wife and I, we all went out together uh, to dinner, and I said, wow, it cost us $100 to go out to dinner. Um, you might leave the dinner and say, oh, it cost us $87.58 to go out to dinner. Well, we'd both be right mm -hmm. in the language of our day. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm not misrepresenting something if I say we spent $100. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes our, our problems are like that with the text, where mm -hmm. if we understand that they're speaking in the language of the day, um, or to your example of, you know, there were two people, one person. Sometimes, like if we were out to dinner, you might say, well, you know, we had a great conversation and this happened. And then my wife might say, well, we talked about this and it was a little tense. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's actually both can be true mm -hmm. because you're speaking from two different perspectives. And the fact that, that God chose to use human authors uh, superintended by his spirit, so it can't be wrong mm -hmm. um, if, if it's of God, mm -hmm. but, but we have to allow for some of those things. And again, I think if you look at them, you can really find it. Uh, there's a book uh, Norman Geisler put out years ago um, that just, and I forget the exact title of it, and I didn't, didn't think of this until just now, but he actually walks through all of the all of the things that are objectionable, like, like you say, oh, how could this be? And gives a reasonable explanation mm -hmm. for them. Uh, super helpful. If you just Google his name, uh, you'll, you'll see the book. And, and because it gives you a, another way to see it mm -hmm. uh, when, when somebody says, here's, here's a problem yeah. uh, with how this goes. Um, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, um, oftentimes if, I, if I'm really stumped, I say, God, how could this be? Usually if I give some time, somebody has, mm -hmm. has an explanation that... Mm -hmm. Like, oh, that, that makes sense. I'm just curious, Kurt, if, if you've come across anything that you're still stumped on, particularly in the Gospels. Not that it's troubling to me as okay. I sit here today. Yeah. Um, I'm sure if I gave that some thought, yeah. I would probably have some things that I say. I still haven't found the resolution right. to that right. completely to my satisfaction. I mean, I could say free will and divine sovereignty or something yeah. <laughs> yeah, is yeah. still out there. But, uh, but usually what I found is there's at least enough of an explanation that I say, well, that may not totally satisfy me, but that's, that's better in my mind than the alternative right. of just saying the whole thing's false. Right. Um, and again, at some point you look at the preponderance and you say, okay, this is still moving in a solid direction, yeah. even, if, even if I have, have an objection yeah. or something that doesn't make perfect sense to me in this instance yeah. in terms of how this and that can both be true. Yeah. Uh, so, so here's a question, and this is uh, specific to a, a book, and so you may need to give us just a really quick summary. We have just maybe three or four minutes left here. Uh, it says, I'm reading a book uh, by A.W. Tozer, The Pursuit of God. In the last chapter, A.W. Tozer discusses the air of the sacredness of places and times. What are your thoughts? So uh, just explain for a moment. I assume that you, you, you figured out the, the exact reference point here. What is the air that Tozer's referring to, and then what are your thoughts? Yeah, so uh, just reading that section of the book, I've not read the whole book, but the, he, he's talking about the difference between the sacredness of place and times. And I think what he's arguing against is 
Now that Christ has come, he has basically fulfilled the law. And all of the holy days, the holy seasons, the holy garments, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. And I think what he's arguing against is that people today or certain faith traditions have sort of held on to these holy days, uh, holy feasts. And he's saying Christ has already fulfilled that, so what are you doing still holding on to that? Um, there's one text I think that is, is really helpful, um, actually two, and I'll just read very quickly. In Romans 14, this is Paul who's writing. He was Jewish, by the way, and he says this, One person considers one day more sacred than the other. Another considers every day alike. But each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. And then mm -hmm. similarly in Colossians 2, he says this, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that are to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And so on the one hand, I appreciate what Tozer's doing. Don't let things become ritualistic just for the sake of doing them. Um, but on the other hand, I think for some people, uh, for example, if you celebrate Advent where you're preparing for Christmas, or Lent as you prepare again for the, the death of Jesus. Those things can become ritualistic, um, but at the same time, if those things help draw you closer to the cross and to Jesus, then I think that can be really helpful. And then, for example, the Sabbath day. Uh, the Sabbath, interestingly enough, is, from my understanding, the one of the Ten Commandments that's not repeated in the New Testament. And so some people can take the Sabbath and make it very ritualistic. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. Or is it meant for, for our benefit, to, to free us, to worship, mm -hmm. to rest? And so that would just be my quick sort of um, discussion on Tozer's point that I think it can be helpful, but I see his point about becoming ritualistic as well. Mm-hmm. Well, good. We're going to leave it right there. So you got the last <laughs> word on that. And uh, Brady, thank you. And thank you for spending part of your day uh, with this content. And if you have questions, send them to ask at orchardhillchurch.com and we will be happy to address them in a coming episode.